We continue in Hebrews chapter 7, 7, 15 to 19. Hebrews 7, 15 to 19. We have here another priest, the priest of life and of hope. Or we may say a priest of indestructible life and a better hope. Hebrews 7, 15. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our great high priest, the best high priest, the best mediator that we could ever have, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, we have failed in many ways to appreciate and comprehend how great it is that you have sent your one and only Son to be our Savior. We ask you to grant us your presence as we seek to better understand what it means to believe in Christ as our priest, our mediator, our savior, the only one who can redeem us from our sins. Give us a greater appreciation. Give us greater conviction. And may we be able to explain the gospel better and understand your word better, the true gospel from your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this long discourse, if we may say, it may seem long to many of us, and we're still only in chapter 7. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 are a very long discourse where the apostle is seeking to prove how it was necessary and how it was always the case that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He is the only one who reveals the true God. He is the only one by his own life and his own ministry, his own purposes, the reason for him coming into the world. He is the only one who can redeem us from our sins. No other faith, no other religion, no good work that we do, not a single good work or any number of good works we do can save us from our sins. He is seeking to prove that point again and again. He is belaboring the point to make sure we understand. Now, you may think, well, we already understand, or I already understand, so why is it necessary to have a long discourse on the subject? Well, many people do not understand. And in fact, even we are growing in our understanding of the value of the coming of Jesus Christ. How important it was and of what value it was for him to come into the world. We're all learning and growing in that endeavor. And in fact, not only are we growing, but many people in churches and many people who are non-Christians in other religions, they have a confused and misunderstanding about the nature of the Christian faith, the nature of what the Bible is, the purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world. Many do that. 
Let me give an example of someone in ancient history whose teachings are still evident today in many, many quarters within Christianity. And this man's name was Pelagius. Pelagius, he lived about A.D. 350 to A.D. 420. So about 400 years after the ministry of Christ and the apostles, three to 400 years later, that's when he lived. And here are some of his teachings, which at the time were condemned as heresy. However, these teachings still crop up in many, many sections and quarters within Christianity. They're even existing today in many, many places. He said, Adam was created liable to death and would have died whether he had sinned or not. Adam was created liable to death and would have died whether he had sinned or not. That means that his death had nothing to do with his sin, his first sin. That's what he believed. Then he says, the sin of Adam hurt himself only and not the human race. Adam's sin, his first sin, hurt himself only, but not the human race, not any of his descendants. It did not hurt you and me. It only hurt it uh, or hurt him. This means that he believed that when each of us comes into the world, we come clean. We come blank. We come perfect. When we are born into the world, we are born as perfect creatures, as perfect infants. That's what he believed. He also taught that the law, that is the law of Moses, the law of Moses introduces men into the kingdom of heaven just in the same way as the gospel does. So he believed the Old Testament was only teaching the law or the law of Moses, and there was no gospel taught in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we have the gospel taught, and we don't have the law taught, but we have the gospel. And in the Old Testament, from the time of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, all the way through the Old Testament, when anyone was saved, they were saved to the extent that they kept the law. They would have to obey the laws to be saved and go to heaven. That's the way they were saved. They were not saved by believing in Christ. They were not saved by putting their hope in Christ. They were saved in that way, by obeying the law. Then he says, Even before the coming of Christ, there were some men sinless, men as a matter of fact, without sin. He says that in the past there were some men who were sinless, perfect throughout their life. And these would be evidently some of the saints of the Old Testament, that they were sinless saints. They weren't redeemed saints from their sins, but they were sinless saints, perfect saints for their whole life. This is what he believed. Furthermore, he says, when God gives a command, it means that man has the ability to carry out that command with his natural abilities. That means when God gives a command, when he issues a command, such as the commandments under Moses, 
leadership. God gave the Ten Commandments. He also gave the two greatest commandments, and he also gave 613 specific commandments. So all of these commandments that Moses delivered, when God delivered them by the hand of Moses, he says that because God issued those commandments, it must mean that those who hear about those commandments have the natural ability, apart from God's grace, apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, they have the natural ability to do everything that God said. They have it. Because God endowed them from the time that they were conceived and born and raised as children, God endowed them with all of the abilities to carry out all of the commandments of God. So, these are some of his teachings, some of his teachings that relate to our subject matter in Hebrews chapter 7. He believed these things, and these teachings are even evident today in many, many places within Christendom. These teachings are there. Therefore, what we read about in Hebrews chapter 7 is not irrelevant. It is very relevant. What we read about here, the argument that he's making is an argument that has relevance perennially throughout all generations. It has relevance because human nature is the same and the devil is a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. The flesh is the same, human nature is the same, the devil is the same and the world is the same basically because they're just people like we are, sinful people like we are. So it should not surprise us that these human fabrications, these human inventions these thoughts, the evil thoughts that arise, arise in every generation. And sometimes even we have thought similar thoughts like this. So we all need to understand constantly what does the truth of God teach? And we need to submit our minds, submit our hearts, submit everything about us to the Word of God. This is why the Apostle goes on and on with one point or another argument, this aspect or that point he's making, he's saying all of this in order to drive it home to us that our only hope forever is Jesus Christ. So because he takes pains, let's also take pains to understand what he's saying. Verse 15, chapter 7, verse 15. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the order, uh, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, so forth. Notice in verse 15, and this is clearer still. That assumes that what he has been saying should have been clear. What he has been saying up to this point throughout his letter should have been clear. Why do people think that it's ambiguous? Why do people say it's unclear? I have to scratch my head. I have to pull out my hair to figure out what he's actually saying. Why, is, why do people come to the Bible that way? He's actually asserting that this is clear still. What he's about to say is even more clear than what he has been saying. His purpose in writing, his purpose in explaining these truths was not to make it dark and cloudy, to make it ambiguous, inconspicuous. He was not trying to do anything like that. 
He's trying to make it very clear. So he asserts here, this is clearer still. If it has not been clear to you already, let me try to make it even more clear to you what I'm trying to say. This is not the only place in Scripture where the assertion is made that what is announced or what is written is clear and nobody should have any kind of confusion, any kind of doubts as to what is actually being taught. The Bible does this in many, many places. To give an example of a couple of places, in Galatians chapter 5, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, there is a contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in 519, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. The deeds of the flesh are evident. When he says evident, he means clear. It's obvious. It should not be a surprise to us how the flesh behaves. In another place, in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, here he contrasts the children of God and the children of the devil. And he says, 1 John 3, verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He says it's obvious for us to know the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. It's obvious. And it has to do with practicing righteousness and loving one's brother. If we know that, if they're doing that, as the Bible stipulates, as the Bible describes what it means to practice God's righteousness and what it means to love one's brother, if one is doing that, then he's a child of God. If one is not doing that, then he's a child of the devil. And he says it's obvious. The distinction is clear. So we should not make it ambiguous. So the, naturally the question arises, if the Bible is so clear on so many subjects in so many places throughout if it is so clear, then why do people make it cloudy? Why do they muddy the waters? Well, the answer is simple. They say it's unclear or they intentionally muddy the waters because they don't want to believe and they don't want to obey what's there. That's why they say it's unclear. I can't know the difference. I don't know the way. That's why they do that. They do that because there is sin, the sin of unbelief. I don't want to believe what it says about the nature of man, the nature of God, the way of salvation, what it says about Jesus Christ, what it says about holiness and righteousness. I don't want to believe it because I don't want to also obey it. I don't want to believe that there's only one true God because I want to believe that those other people over there are also going to heaven. I don't want it to say that I should not worship idols or I should not murder or dishonor my parents or keep the Sabbath day or covet or anything else. I don't want to believe any of that because I really like doing that. I really like hating people or murdering people. I really like committing adultery. I really like coveting. I really like stealing. So I don't want anybody to tell me, especially God, that it's wrong. And then they will say, well, the Bible is unclear. I don't know what it means to steal. I don't know what adultery means. I don't know what covetous is, covetousness is. I don't know what dishonoring my parents is. It's, it's, it's different. It's different from family to family. Dishonoring parents is different from family to family, from culture to culture. So don't blame me if you think I'm dishonoring my parents. 
You see, this is the way, the way people are. And they do that with the truths of the nature and ministry of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Christ, they do it with that too. Because they don't want to be obligated to whatever Christ says. They want to deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's why they don't want to believe the Bible is clear. It is clear. It's clear enough, whether you read it or whether you find someone who knows what he's talking about in the Bible, eventually the Bible is clear. The problem is not with God's communication. The problem is with our reception of his communication. That is the basic problem. So he says, and this is clearer still. What is clear? If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an, in, uh, of an un indestructible life. What does he say here? He says, okay, we know the Aaronic priesthood through the tribe of Levi in the time of Moses in 1500 BC, that was instituted. But then later, in the time of David, David, 500 years after Moses, he prophesies in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He records the words of God the Father to the Son, the Christ, the Messiah, in Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And if he's going to be a priest forever, and David has also prophesied, such as Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, David has prophesied that when the Messiah comes into the world, he's going to first die for our sins, and then he will rise from the dead and live forever with an indestructible life. He will be immortal forever. He'll only be dead for three days. Otherwise, he will rise from the dead and live forever. That is the key word. That's the key word that he seizes upon in verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, from the previous passage in chapter 7, we saw Abraham knew that he was inferior to Melchizedek who was superior to him. If Abraham knew that, then if Messiah comes many years later and his priesthood is like that of Melchizedek's and that one lasts forever, then this one that's in the intermediate period, this one that's between Melchizedek's appearance to Abraham and Christ's appearance in the world, this intermediate priesthood under Moses, the tribe of Levi, and Aaron, that priesthood must be temporary. It must be inferior. Why? He says here, we know it is so because they became priests. Aaron's sons became priests because they were born in his family. Merely for that reason. Not because of any virtue in them. Not because of any goodness in them. Not because they had lived righteously for 20, 30, 40 years. Not because of any virtue in them. But merely, he says, on the basis of a law of physical requirement. So, not that that was wrong or bad, that's the way God instituted it. But he did it in order to illustrate to the people that that priesthood was not forever. 
It was not forever because that priest could only be a priest for a short time during his life. He could only be a priest for a short time during his life. Then he would die and then one of his sons would take his place. That's the way it worked. But in this prophecy of Christ coming in Psalm 110, Christ will live forever. And if he lives forever and he's going to die, his death relates to his first coming. And then when he dies on the cross and rises from the dead to live forever, this indestructible life, this immortal life, if he lives forever, there is no need to transfer his priesthood to another individual. There's no need to do that. So by its very basis or by its very nature, the nature of the priesthood, it should show that what Aaron possessed was inferior, it was subsumed, it was only illustrative of the need for Christ to come and abolish the Aaronic priesthood, abolish the animal sacrifices, abolish the temple rituals, to do away with all of that, to put away all of that, because the sacrifice of Christ by his death on the cross is the only means of salvation. We're not saved because Aaron and his sons offered up an animal one day for our sins. Absolutely not. That would not be the way. It would have to be only because Christ would come into the world to die for our sins. Now, one may ask, did they know this? Did they believe this? Did they in the Old Testament know and believe what I am saying? The argument was already made about Abraham earlier in chapter 7. But let's also go to Hebrews 9 and mention a few other people. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 15. Hebrews 9, 15. He says, And for this reason... He is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He says that the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Well, who committed all these transgressions under the first covenant. The first covenant, he means the Mosaic covenant or old covenant. That's his use of this term first covenant. By first, he means the Mosaic or the old covenant. He says that this death needed to come for the forgiveness of the sins of all those people who lived under the Mosaic covenant. If that death needed to occur for all of their redemption, then their redemption was not based on the death of an animal, or the death of seven animals, or ten animals, or an animal every day of the year for the rest of their life, or ten animals every day for the rest of their life. It wasn't based on anything like that. It was based on the death of the mediator of the new covenant, the better covenant. So he says here, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. It was this death, the death of Christ, that was for the redemption of those transgressions. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 24. 11, 24. Moses. Moses, who delivered the law. 
and this whole system of rituals and animal sacrifices. Moses, did Moses know that what he was delivering was not for his own redemption? The animal sacrifices were not for his redemption and not for the redemption of the nation, but signifying something better and greater. Did he know that? Yes. Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses, he was looking to the reward. This reward is not a physical reward because it says he already gave up the physical in Pharaoh's court. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, the king of Egypt's daughter. He was raised by her. He had all the wealth. He had all the notoriety. He had all of the comforts and luxuries of life he could ever ask for in the court of Pharaoh. So what he gave up was not to get more riches, more physical riches, but more spiritual riches. He gave up the physical for the spiritual. He says in verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And if you have read those passages of the Old Testament from Exodus to Deuteronomy lately, you know how uh, rebellious and bitter the people were against Moses constantly. They're constantly trying to trip him up, constantly attacking him, constantly accusing him. The whole nation, millions of them, are doing that all the time, constantly doing that. And it says, he was willing to endure that. He was willing to endure all of that mistreatment. Why? Verse 26, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. It was greater spiritual riches to consider the reproach of Christ than to cling on to, to hold on to, the physical treasures of Egypt. Moses, therefore, if he's putting his hope in the reproach of Christ, in the defamation of Christ, where is this reproach or defamation of Christ? Where does it reside? Does it reside in him coming on a white horse as a king? Uh, magnificently decked as a king with a crown on his head? Is that the way he attaches himself to the reproach of Christ? No. It would have to be because he believed in the humiliation of Christ, that he would be persecuted during his life and that he would be put to death on the cross in infamy. That would be a reproach. A reproach by a miserable death on the cross by the hands of godless pagans, Romans, and by the hands of his own religious authorities, all of them conspiring together to put an innocent man on the cross. That would be a reproach. And that's the reproach he believed in. And we know that he believed, Moses believed in the cross of Christ and this indestructible life that would follow that in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 says, Verse 10, Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside 
the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. He clearly puts it all together in this passage. He says, the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. Jesus was crucified outside the gate through his own blood to sanctify the people, to sanctify us. Then he says, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He died on a cross outside the camp or outside the gate. Let us also be willing to die, bearing his reproach, outside the camp, outside the gate. We need to bear his reproach too. We need to identify ourselves to the cross of Christ and bear that cross ourselves. That's the only way that we can understand Hebrews 9, Hebrews 11, and now Hebrews 13. It says in Luke 9, 23, If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Take up his cross daily is what is being said right here. Bear the reproach of Christ. Be willing to be ridiculed and mocked and persecuted for the name of Christ. Bear his reproach, even if that means that our persecutors put us to death. This is what Moses believed, and this is what he knew for his eternal inheritance, for the lasting city, the heavenly city. That's why the indestructible life of Christ is important, because it has to do with eternal life, not physical life, not a physical requirement, but an eternal life and eternal hope. Now, verse 18. Back to Hebrews 7 and verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Now, the one hand, he says, there's a setting aside. There is an abolition. There is a, a putting away of a previous commandment. He calls it former commandment. By former commandment, He's summarizing the law, the law of Moses in its ritualistic sense, in the animal sacrificial sense. In that sense, all of that is set aside because we have the death of Christ to which or for which all of these animal sacrifices were pointing. They were pointing to all of that. So now that that has happened, Jesus has come and he has died, now there is an abrogation, a setting aside, putting away, getting rid of those old rituals. That's why we don't practice them. We don't practice them because of this. Now, was the problem the law itself? Was the problem the giving of the commandments for animal sacrifice and other rituals and festivals? Was the problem that in and of itself? No, absolutely not. The problem was not that itself because the law was given by God. God issued it. God is the one who commanded all of those things to be done. So the problem was not the law itself. 
It was good, it was holy, it was righteous. It was the will of God. And it was good to the extent that the hearers of the law understood its purpose. Its purpose was to highlight the holiness of God. Its purpose was to highlight the sinfulness of man. Its purpose was to show that their own only salvation was through faith in Jesus Christ. Its purpose was to show by types and illustrations, shadows, that Christ would come into the world and fulfill everything that these things signified. Those were the purposes of the law. But the purpose of the law was not to say, okay, I've laid out for you these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Okay, I've laid out for you these 10 commandments in the, ten, uh, in the two tablets of stone, Moses, uh, Exodus chapter 20, that these commandments are here laid out. Or let me take some more time and lay out for you 613 commandments. Let me show you how you can and will guaranteed be able to obey all of these. Let me show you. That was not the intention because it was not assumed that the people hearing the commandments could obey. The purpose was to show that they could not obey the requirements of a holy God and therefore they needed to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. That was the purpose. Let's see. He says here in verse 18, because of its weakness and uselessness. Its weakness and uselessness. He does not mean that it was weak and useless because of its deficiency, that it was sinful, it was wrong, it was erroneous, it was contradictory. He doesn't mean it that way. He means what it expected of us could not be done. And the fault does not lie with the commandment or the law. The fault lies with us. It lies with the people who hear it. Notice chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews 8, 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Here, citing Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, he's saying, listen, the Mosaic covenant, Jeremiah lived several hundred years after Moses and several hundred years before Christ. He's in the midpoint in the history of the Old Testament between Moses and Christ. And he says, if that first covenant, the Mosaic or Old Covenant, had been faultless, why was it that Jeremiah the prophet comes around later announcing the word of God and saying that there's going to be a second covenant, also called the New Covenant, and by other names as well? Why is it that Jeremiah announces a new covenant is coming? He says in verse 8, for finding fault with them. The fault was in the people who could not obey the laws that Moses instituted. The problem was not in the law itself, but in the people who could not and would not obey that law in the way that God desired, in the full sense. Let's see other scriptures that emphasize this point, that it is the fault of the people, not the law itself. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. 
For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This is an amazing quotation right here in verse 10 because he says that the works of the law, whoever does the works of the law, they're still under a curse. Why? Because Moses said in Deuteronomy 27, 26, when Moses actually delivered the law, he told the people, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you don't do everything in thought, word, and deed, you're under a curse. Moses told that to the people so that the people should not misunderstand why he's delivering the law to them. He told those same people, you're not, I'm giving you this law, but I know you're not going to carry it out and you're all under a curse. You're under a curse. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. There's our word evident again, or clear. It's evident. No one is going to be justified by doing the law in the sight of God, for the righteous man shall live by faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk is also a contemporary of Jeremiah the prophet, midpoint between the time of Moses and the time of the coming of Christ. He is a midpoint prophet. And he says that you're not justified by doing the law, you are justified by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. He is living in the period of the law, just as Jeremiah did, and they both are saying, you're not going to be saved by obeying the law, even when you do those good things, because everyone is under a curse. Because in many ways, we don't keep it. We are all under a curse. And if that's not enough, verse 12, Galatians 3.12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law, when it was commanded, was not intending to promote faith first. It was intended to bring everyone under judgment first, and then faith in Christ. First judgment or punishment, and then faith. Because he says, on the contrary, Moses delivered this word in Leviticus 18.5, Another place where Moses made it plain and clear to the people, he who practices them shall live by them. Okay, if you practice all of these commandments I'm giving you, thought, word, and deed, you practice them, you'll live by them. Moses is presenting to the people a hypothetical, an impossible, hypothetical, theoretical situation that is, is impossible for anyone to practice it all and then therefore have life. It's required of you, but it's impossible to come from you. It's impossible. Moses said that himself when he delivered the law. And 13, verse 13, Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There too, a quote from Deuteronomy 21, 23, where Christ will come and he will be a curse for us. He will be put on a tree or on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Not only did Moses prophesy the death of Christ, but also David did, Isaiah did, in many, many places. The prophets prophesied of the coming death of Christ 
as the only way for us to be saved, not by works. So the problem was in us, not in the law. Further, let's illustrate this fact from Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. It says, what the law could not do, what the law was unable to do, weak as it was through the flesh. So where is the fault? Where is the blame? Not in the law itself, but the blame is on us, the flesh. That's why the law is weak. Therefore, it takes a miracle of God by the death of Christ to be the penalty for our sin, for us to be justified. Romans, Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 7, 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. The blame is not on the law. The law exposes our sin. The cause of our death, the cause of our rebellion, the cause of our alienation from God is our sin, not the commandment that exposes our sin. That is the problem, our sin, according to the Apostle Paul. Turn to Romans chapter 5, 5 verse 20. Why did God give these commandments? 5.20 And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why was the law given to the people? It was given that transgression might increase. He means, just as he said in Galatians 3, it was added, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. God wanted to make it more and more clear. He wanted to make it absolutely clear in the minds of the people because they had self-confidence. They were inflated in their egos. They thought that they were swell and happy and they were good people and that they deserved everything that they were getting from God. That's the mentality of the people. Not just the people of Israel, but all people are, like, are that way. But God illustrated to them even more than he did with previous generations by giving them many, many more commandments that they needed to obey to show them, as he says here, the law came in that the transgression might increase. I'm giving you more commandments so that you can say and understand, wow, this is impossible. I can't do this. 
I cannot do this. I'm a miserable creature. I cannot do all of these commandments. It's impossible for me. And to be just like that tax collector in Luke 18, 9 to 14, who was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's why the transgress or the laws were given so that the transgressions might come to the surface. It might become more and more clear to the people that they needed forgiveness and that this forgiveness would be by grace through faith in Christ. As he says in Romans 9:21 or 5:21, Romans 5:21 that righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was intended to drive the people to believe in Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 19. Chapter 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It exposes our sins. And because it exposes our sins, its intention is to keep our mouths closed in the sight of God. Because those who open their mouths in the sight of God show forth their pride, their hubris, their arrogance. It shows their stony heart and their fighting and and conflicting nature against God. But its intention is to keep our mouths closed and for us to say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's the intention of the law. For the law to bring us to that point and say that we are accountable to God. We are nothing. He is everything. But to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That was the purpose of the law. And this is what he's saying in Hebrews chapter 7. He's saying that the law was weak in the sense that we were weak. Not because the law in its very nature was a bad thing or an evil thing. Therefore, if that's the way it is, what is the other hand? Hebrews 7.19 says, And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope that through which we draw near to God. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Well, what was the hope of the people? The hope of the people in the law of Moses, though there were spiritual aspects of it, let's not misunderstand. This contrast the apostle's making for us is he's not saying that in the pages of the law of Moses, in the pages of Genesis to Deuteronomy, or even Exodus to Deuteronomy, and in the pages of all the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, he is not asserting that there is no gospel, that there is no escape, that there is no way out for their sins. He's not saying that, that the Old Testament does not proclaim that and show that. His only point is that the ritualistic parts of the Old Testament were not intended to save us, but to expose us, to show us our sinfulness. So then he says that the better hope is for them in the Old Testament to believe in these promises of the coming Christ. 
which we find in many, many places throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Numbers 24, 17. A scepter shall come from Jacob. A star shall come. It says that in, in Numbers 24, 17. Or, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brethren. Deuteronomy 18, 15. There are many passages like that that Moses wrote, that Isaiah wrote, like Isaiah 53. Who can read Isaiah 53 and come away thinking that that is describing any other man, any other person in human history but Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth? That's all he's describing right there in Isaiah 53, the coming of the death of Christ. Therefore, the argument of the apostle is not to say the Old Testament is a hopeless book. He's saying there is this hopelessness in exposing our sins to drive us to the hope that's in Christ. It's supposed to drive us, like it did Isaiah, to believe in Christ, like it did Moses to believe in Christ, and all the other saints of the Old Testament to believe in Christ. And to believe in Christ is a better hope. That's his point. To believe in Christ is a better hope. The people of Israel, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. They did not have the kind of prosperity, the kind of peace, the kind of family life, the kind of laws that they would have in the land of Canaan once they conquered Canaan. They lived a miserable life for a period of time in the land of Egypt as slaves, did they not? The hope that they had in the physical sense was that they would be released from slavery, they would not be slave men anymore, but they would be free men, they would not be working and sweating there in the fields, there in the kilns, in kilns and making bricks and all these other things, there for the Egyptians' primary benefit. But when they worked in the land of Canaan, it would be for their own primary benefit. These were some of the promises, right? That God promised them under Moses and under Joshua. Now that should give us hope. That should give them hope. Yes, our life will be better. Our physical life will be better. But God did not intend for them to look at the betterment of their physical life and end it at that. He intended for that to be an illustration of a better heavenly life, a better eternal life for them to put their hope in that. That's why he says that our hope is better than the physical hope. Our hope is better because it's eternal. It's unseen right now, but it will be seen and it will last forever and ever and ever. Isn't peace with God, reconciliation with God in Christ, isn't forgiveness of sins, isn't immortality, isn't the personal presence of God, we maintaining our personal existence in the presence of a personal and holy God, isn't that more glorious? Isn't that more hopeful? Isn't that more peaceful? Isn't that a better reason to live than to live for peace, progeny, and a pot belly? to live for fun, to live for fame and fortune. Isn't that better? Of course it is. It is better to live for eternity, the better hope, than to live for the world. That's what he's saying. He's saying the true saints of the Old Testament knew this, and we should know this. Don't put our hope in temporary things. 
but in eternal things. That's better. Who can deny that eternity with the Lord God himself and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who can deny that that is better than the things of this world? So it's better. He also says, through which we draw near to God. By drawing near to God, I believe he is encompassing all of the benefits of knowing Christ. I don't think he's just talking about coming to God in prayer, which is one of the benefits. But I think he is encompassing by this phrase everything that we have in in God. We were unable to draw near to God, just as the people of Israel were unable to draw near to God in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. They were unable to do that. Only the high priest could go in there with certain specifications. He could not go in there willy-nilly whenever he felt like it. He had to prepare himself properly before he could go into the most holy place. And even then, only he could go. So, drawing near to God is a privilege. Having this reconciliation, being united to God himself, is a privilege that everybody doesn't have. Everyone cannot say, I have access to God. Only a few have access to God. Only those who are redeemed in Christ have access to God. We can draw near to God. Can you imagine? Have you thought about how wonderful that is? That we, though we are sinful, we who are wretched, poor, and blind, we who are naked in our own spiritual condition, we are that way. And yet, God has chosen to draw to to take our hands and to draw us close to Him, we are able to draw near to God like that? We have things that others do not have. This is what God has done for us. He's done all of this for us in Christ. Only in this better hope, Christ Himself, do we have access to God Himself. Only that way. Who would not, therefore, say, this is the way we should believe? This is the way we should live. No matter what the world says, no matter what commotion, what cacophony is out there in the world saying, follow me, do this, follow this, do that. Don't believe that. Don't believe the Bible. Don't believe in Christ. There's other ways. They say all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Here he says, the only way for us to draw near to God, to have access to God, is through Christ. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only mediator. And this is who we know. So let's believe it. Let's believe it. Let's obey it. Without compromise, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.